The question was about using the practice in um, the context of illness, how mindfulness uh, supported, for example, how mindfulness supported me during my uh, illness. Much of the time it just flies out of the window. (laughs) 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 And I have to invent other... um, self-soothing techniques like calling the uh, surf report in Hawaii, (laughs) 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 which I did. (laughs) But because it was big, it made me more miserable. (laughs) 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 I do a lot of metta when I'm not feeling well, actually. It's, um, uh, for me, it just takes less energy when so much energy has been being expended you know, uh, with a cold or headache or flu or fever and so forth, uh, I tend to just fall into loving-kindness practice. I find that really helpful. And if there is energy for mindfulness, uh, a lot of body-based awareness uh, I find most helpful. Just because the body's going through a lot, a lot of temperature changes and lots of areas and of numbness or... Uh, tumultuousness and so forth. I just try to keep the awareness on the body. And there's a lot of surrender. Uh, Years before practice, I found a lot of identification with being sick and so forth. And uh, being sick in Burma or in retreats, I have found it a wonderful way to decondition that identity around being sick. Just using the available energy and practicing low level. (coughs) Sati is um, a Pali word for mindfulness, for that Noticing power of mind. Sati resides in the present moment. It's a present time awareness that is just aware of the presently arising phenomena. Just what's happening. Noticing it as it is, not through filters. Um, Sustain sati. Sati that begins to mature, begins to weave its way in our consciousness, our stream of consciousness more and more has a tendency to collect the mind, to gather it from its usual scattered, fractured, uh, disconnected uh, nature, brings it together, collects it, unifies it. And samadhi is the unified, or the unification of the mind. Okay, clear? Such as? Such as nothing special happened. And I'm noticing now in sitting that I have this tendency in uh, aspiring to be present in the moment. Um, so 
not being okay with just a very subtle, subtle sensation, subtle mind states, instead of a leaning into wanting to um, feel more intensity. And there's an association with that intensity as being connected with whatever's happening. Um, and it's, it's quite difficult for me to be in receptive when it's really subtle. You know, I have this, this idea that somehow being connected and being in the moment is going to be something. Um, it's going to be something a little bit more um, profound and intense when I'm receptive. And so I'm finding the present moment extremely elusive. simple could actually be present. Um, and I, I'm not quite sure how to formulate the question, but it's sort of maybe you have some, some comments on this predicament that I'm pointing at. <laughs> um. A lot of times when we think that nothing special is happening, there's a lot happening, you know, and it's just to uh, be aware of our tendency to devalue that experience, that, that our experience need be something quite intense. Uh, f- for me, often, when, it's, when experience seems in the neutral realm, neither strong one way or the other, I anchor more in the awareness itself and not so much on the objects that are appearing, but actually try to turn it in on itself, feel the quality of the awareness, just like to explore. Is it lacking in energy or, you know, is it uh, too much energy? Um, Is it too much concentration or too little? I just try to get a feel of the tone of the awareness. Many times, in that way, I discover, you know, interest comes up again, a lot of interest. Sometimes when experience seems rather flat, it's, it's that interest factor that's low. And so to find something to investigate, investigation can be the, the cause for there to be more interest. Uh, and if there's nothing powerful to, that are clear to investigate in the body, turn it right onto your awareness itself. You know, or go through the different sense doors. Just bring your awareness to sight, to sound, to smell, to taste, to body sensation, and then back in again to the mind. Just use a little exercise. Sometimes it's just the slightest shift that makes a difference. In fact, as practice rolls along, uh, it's quite important to realize that uh, our tendency to make a big change is often keeping us more stuck in a way. But just the, the slightest little shifts. When they first uh, started flying airplanes, uh, they had the capacity to build a, a huge, big plane, you know. But they couldn't fly it because they couldn't turn the rear um, wing rudder. Uh, and until someone invented the most simple thing called a trip tab, the trip tab just fits on the rear uh, rudder wing of the plane. And it's a very small little wing that just turns. And that little turn turns the big one. You know, and then they could fly this huge mammoth big plane. It's the same in practice. 
we just need the slightest little adjustments as we get into it more and to see. And again, that interest picks up. Or we see underneath the boredom is, uh, in fact, maybe aversion or fear or something. So, so just take care in not judging, not trying to get out of that experience. Ground on awareness or go through the sense doors. Just hang out with where it seems flat. It can be very interesting. That's the, the meaning of the word kanti in the parami of patience. It means being able to be with the desirable or the undesirable without needing it to change one way or the other. Um, the question's about after interviews, she tends to lose energy. Uh, like, you know, like what you say, like school's getting out or something. Mm-hmm. What, do you know, is there an anticipation before the interviews? There's definitely a work harder. You might look if you're not building up a lot of excessive energy, you know, for the interview rather than being more mindful or aware or equanimous through the whole process. I mean, obviously there is some anticipation, but to, to get too sort of top-heavy in the energy of the interview can perhaps have the result of a kind of fallout. So you might just try to notice what happens when you lead up to it. You know, and if there's low energy after the interview, that's okay. It's just low energy. Mindfulness itself, just anchoring in mindfulness. No, yeah. I mean, uh, Right. Right. In a moment of mindfulness, th- that energy or effort factor is there. It's that, uh, it's that strength of mind. It's the right effort of being present. It's the force we use to arrive in each moment, to catch the wave of each moment's experience. That's what I mean by, by energy or effort. And in time, it's sort of attuned, it's harmonized with, with mindfulness. It's there with concentration, with all the other you know, associated factors. So, so we, if we can just, ex- in exploring mindfulness itself, we can see its uh, presence or lack of that strength, of that, of that factor, yep, that effort. And just being aware of it sometimes is what draws it back into balance again. Okay. It's along the same line, so there's a, an active element that's sucked. Very active. Yes, you bet. It's a powerful element. Still not quite clear. I mean, there's a fine line there about an agenda or 
what would be a scenario like a lot of things are going on, one is a little predominant just to move up and well, one way of looking at it is uh, an agenda is trying to get somewhere. Uh, but energy doesn't have to get anywhere. It can just stay present. And it, it takes, at first, some kind of uh, energy to, to get on to the present moment. Like I've used the analogy of the energy it takes to, to paddle and catch the wave. You can't take too much. If it's too much energy, you're going to what's called pearl dive. You know, and you just head for the reef and a wave breaks over you. Not enough energy, you're going to miss the wave. So it, it takes some, you know, output. And, and then it's as if the wave of the moment picks you up. And that's really what happens each moment. And at, at times it feels like you have to put out a little more. At other times you kind of soften up a bit. It's more and more effortless. You just, you get a, you just have a real feel for the present moment. And it's like there's nothing more that, it, that needs to be done. The effort is there, but it's there effortlessly. The energy is there, just in an, in an awake, present way. Okay, another analogy is between... I, I mentioned patience. Between patience and resolve, there are two very important paramis. And patience, as I was saying, is that ability, ability just to be with what's happening pleasant or unpleasant, desirable or undesirable. Acceptance is the term I use a lot for this patience. At the same time, there's this parami of determination, of resolve. You know, and that's onward moving. That's definitely onward going. It, it doesn't have to have an agenda of, of um, particularly getting away from anything. In other words, when I talk about agenda, it usually means attachment or aversion. But it can have that, that real, deep Dhamma resolve uh, to follow that urge toward understanding, toward liberation, toward being in the present moment. So it's really, uh, the words all point to a sense, a sensitivity that each of you need get in touch with, uh, a rhythm, so that you know when you need to put out or pull back or just reside in the present. There's a time and an appropriateness for all of it. May you all be well and happy. The question is about control and no control. The balance. What I'm referring to is, you know, like yesterday I had a pain in my back. Mm -hmm. uh, yet my mind is cool, I'm noting it. It's more intense. It goes up, it's out of control, running its course. The pain is out of control, doing its thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And yet I can remember back another time when there was pain in the lower back mm -hmm. for weeks. Mm -hmm. And my intention is the same, to stay with it. Mm -hmm. But it was not wise to do it. I'd paid the price for months afterwards. Mm -hmm. What was needed was some correction in my posture, mm. control. Oh, okay. Control, out of control. Hmm. Um, yeah, you may have noticed that the, that the body and the mind are out of control. Hmm. <laughs> right.
<laughs> and for the most part, as you acknowledged, our practice here is to be with the mind and the body as it careens into the future and to have as balanced a mind as possible in relationship to it. When, as he was talking about, you have uh, a lot of pain, sometimes the samadhi, our steadiness of mind and clarity of mind, is so great that we can be with extreme pain with a balanced mind and hurt ourselves. I think, well first, most of us have done that to a degree, (laughs) which indicates probably a lack of balance somewhere. The mind is equanimous in relationship to it, but we're not taking into account the limitations of the body or of particular conditions that we may know we have. Old injuries, chronic something, arthritis or whatnot. And I think those have to be taken into account so that we don't hurt ourselves. And I think the whole relationship to a chronic pain particularly, is one of pushing the limit, maybe going over the edge or over the limit, and then being too soft. And as we wander down the path, we'll probably go to both extremes. Be lazy and a little too pampering. Be too ascetic and a little bit too harsh. Hopefully we'll find the place in the middle more frequently as we become more sensitive to our body and our mind-mental relationship to it. Sometimes we need real determined warrior-type energy to be with some conditions. And sometimes we need a much softer, gentler, approach to dealing with difficult stuff. Balance. And I think if we, if we watch the commentator, if we listen to that commentator in our mind that says, you gotta get through this so that you can get right. Well, maybe not, maybe you ought to note hearing, hearing. <laughs> or you know, if you're listening to the one that says, hey, hey, hey whoa, 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 whoa. There's, there's, a, there's a tingle there, I better move. Oh, 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 my leg started to go numb, oops. Well, maybe you better note hearing again. And watch both of those extremes and find the middle way. Yeah, realistically, it seems like we win some, we lose some. (laughs) But we keep our mindfulness through it all. (laughs) um, Yes, 
yesterday, uh, Stephen in a question and answer was talking about turning awareness on itself and being aware of that. And um, I've been trying to do this, and I'm not quite clear how to be aware of awareness because I can't seem to quite locate it. <laughs> we have a rule when we teach as a team that we never answer someone else's question. <laughs> so if this question is really for Stephen, I will have to wait till he comes back. <laughs> no. <laughs> Teasing. Um, how to be aware of awareness? Question? couple things come to mind. I think we've all had times in a sitting or even a day or in walking or in looking at something, hearing something, thinking, when the experience was particularly clear. Whatever it is. It's just, it's like, Everything is out of the way, and there's just this very crystal, pristine, exquisite experience, kind of uncontaminated or clouded or by anything else. That's an example of very clear awareness of an object. And we've had the other times when we wallow along, and it's like... We're a little bit aware, maybe. And that's an example of not very clear, but aware. Sometimes the fact of that clarity may be what you notice, more than even the color of what you're seeing, the taste of what you're eating, the experience of the body and its exquisiteness. It's just the clarity of it. It's like, wow, there's just this in, you know, it's like a single spot of color on a pure white background, that degree of clarity. And sometimes it's like a spot of color in a, a modernist painting. It's like just one of many, not so clear, not so pristine. How to do that, I wouldn't try. I would just recognize that at times we notice the clarity of the mind, and at times that's not what we notice. Or we might notice the unclarity. It's just like, God, I can't really get it, but I'm here. Stephen may have some other idea or some. Uh, I remember the question, and I, was, I didn't know how I would answer it, and I still don't. <laughs> Do we have choice? Do we have choice? At one level of experience, we'd say, yeah, we have choice. We have a choice whether to sit here and listen to these answers and questions and answers or get up and leave. No, you don't. 
That was a wrong example. <laughs> but obviously we have choice. We all made a choice to come here to do the retreat. Uh, we have a choice of whether to do a sitting or not. Whether it's who it is that's making a choice gets interesting when we start looking at the minuteness of how intentions arise in a moment and what we do with them. Because that's really where we choose and where we choose to act or not act on intentions. And I think we've all had the experience, and I'll point it out to you, where you're sitting and there's an itch, a pain, a something, and we have this unthought about impulse to move. And it's just, you know, and the hand may even jerk or start or move to, to get that itch, to move that leg, to ease that pain. And it doesn't happen. There's an impulse. And just the power of that impulse in the mind may reverberate through the body. That is an intention noted and unacted on. At that moment, we could say, oh, I've been watching this itch for an hour. It's time to scratch. Okay. And we have a choice to do that. Follow the intentions, notice the movement, etc., etc. So in one sense, we have that, that level of choice. On an, in an, another way of looking at it is, we don't have a choice as to what experience to experience. What we experience when, the, when we sit down is not our choice. It comes. Conditions come together. We don't control the conditions. We don't control the mind, the body, the weather, or anything else. And conditions come together. We have some experience, physical and mental. That's not our choice. What we do with it is what we start to pay attention to in meditation. I can't really say that what we do with it is our choice until we become mindful, notice our intentions, and then we have a choice. Until that time, we're an automaton, acting out of conditioned habits, which are unconscious. And so then again, I'd say, didn't really have a choice. You responded, or we respond, I respond, we all respond, in habitual, conditioned ways. Is that choice? No. And so when we say that insight meditation, as Joseph's new book is titled, is the practice of freedom, it's seeing that in each moment that we're aware of our experience, before we respond, before we react, we have to see that moment of choice. And it's only at that moment that there's freedom to choose. And if you don't see that moment and you react habitually, blindly, unmindfully, without noticing the intention to act or react, not free. And so, Noticing the moment's experience prior to reaction 
and action is freedom. That's where we have the choice. No, say, say that again, excuse is me. The chain of, of events. Is the chain of events. Yeah. yeah. Being mindful, noticing uh, the moment, noticing intention, and then choosing. Roughly, there are f- uh, there are actually quite a few more steps in there, but roughly that's it. Yeah. I don't think I caught that wave. <laughs> I think I got nosedive with that one. But I think, I mean, I, th- I think what you're pointing to is that everything we do actually in life is to get a wave. And we have, we try everything, is to get that thrill, to get that rush, to be in the moment surfing or whatever. Who was it? Um, one of the spiritual teachers says, you know, life is lots of waves. What we need to do is learn to surf. And there used to be a, <laughs> used to be a poster in the maintenance shop here of a tidal wave, <laughs> you know, about 20 feet high, just <laughs> about to, <laughs> you know, 20 feet down to, to beach. And somebody on a surfboard right at the top of it saying, with the surfboard aimed straight down saying, I take refuge in the Dhamma. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it's like lots of time. (laughs) Just take refuge in the Dhamma, whatever your experience is. So it's nine o'clock. Let's catch this wave. Any questions this morning from the shy and the not shy?
It's a beautiful question. I mean, it's a very profound question. I think that, you know that feeling when you tell people you're coming on a retreat and they act like you're going on a holiday. <laughs> and you know, they think of this as some resort where it's a, just a pleasure land. <laughs> and the actuality is that there's a lot of deep and often difficult work that's being done one of the things that happens is that we uncover these very deep roots of aversion and desire. And often the more one practices, the more one really has uh, a, a view of the possibility that we could do anything. You know, that we're, we can put ourselves in anybody's shoes because we have gone through it in our practice. Uh, so what you're talking about is killer rage, you know. It's just killer rage. <laughs> My favorite, killer rage. You know, it's just, it's another landscape to learn to go through. And it's possible, I think, that what we're trying to learn to do is to be directly, to come directly into the experience uh, and to understand it intuitively rather than to look at it intellectually. Uh, So there's usually a tremendous fear of experiencing things like hopelessness or killer rage or anything very difficult because we often think that it's true and that it means something. Whereas with the purity of the mindfulness, you know, you can look at your watch. I love that time when practice where I'll look at my watch and it won't mean anything. You know, it's like it takes five minutes to sort of get uh, 12 o'clock. <laughs> <You know? laughs> is it lunchtime? I mean, it's just so much in the moment that there isn't that meaning that comes with it. And it's the same with something like killer rage or whatever that's difficult. Often, if we think that that's mine, then it means that we'll kill. Whereas if we can just be with that experience of extreme aversion. You know, it's just bringing your attention into the body, and it's, it's somewhere in the body there's usually a major contraction, you know, like tightness, 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 tightness. You know, it's, <laughs> it's really usually uh, air element and earth element having a hurricane. And so it's, it's important to see that a lot of it is just tightness. And, and killer rage often has this desire to hurt back. You know, there's an element of some memory of hurt where there's a, there's a really uh, desire to hurt back. So often it has different elements involved with it. Well, there'll be thoughts and physical sensations. I recommend trying really hard to find a place in the body where you feel 
the contraction. And to, to note something like tightness as well as rage, because the tightness is usually more workable. And to see that it's, you know, just like listening to the sound of a bird. It might be a little more unpleasant. (laughs) Remember that when you accept that something's happening, it doesn't make it necessarily pleasant. And killer rage usually won't have this element of pleasantness in it. <laughs> so it, sometimes it's helpful to note unpleasant, unpleasant. Or the real key is to see how much aversion there is to the rage or fear and, and to just let it be a process. It's a great, great question. Mm-hmm. Did you hear the question? If someone has having killer rage and then it becomes a fantasy of hurting someone else, does that produce karmic results? <sighs> the fantasy is usually a resistance to the experience. And so it in that um, I think the more we believe that fantasy to be true, uh, there is some wholesome nature to those thoughts. But the, the karma that we're interested in is when we take an action. And so that has, that has a kind of weight, much more, um, there's much more weight to any action than to a thought. And I, I think we have to be really careful here because we can't control thinking. And so if we start to get into this idea that thinking is going to lead to some unwholesome result, it's, it's crazy. So that it's more to get a sense that anything can go through your mind. <laughs> and you get a real good view of that on a three-month retreat. <laughs> I mean, you know, the big joke would be as if your mind, every morning if we had one person's mind hooked up to a loudspeaker, <laughs> you would never want to walk into the retreat. You know, it would be humiliating. And it's just to, that, that sense of, <laughs> just the thought of it, you know, it's enough to get us out of here. <laughs> so be careful of that kind of, um, it's, I think it's much more helpful to see thoughts as something we can't control. They, they come and go by themselves. And it's that identification that leads to karmic results. You know. Mm-hmm. You know, Michelle, that first night you picked off some ways to meet this experience, what to bring to it. Maybe it would be helpful to take those off again with compassion and non-identification. Oh, the, uh, the great list. Uh, <laughs> the three things I mentioned to help work with anything in practice is recognition, uh, acceptance, and non-identification. So with something like a, you know, violent fantasy, it's just it's it's to recognize it, 
accept it, and see that it's not ours. It's just, just thinking. Mm-hmm. I have heard that karmic results can result from intentions. Right. And it seems to me that intentions mm-hmm. are very close cousins to thought. So if I were to sit here and have this, this murderous killing rage towards something, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Kind of, um, that's a hair away, it seems to me, from an intention. Unfortunately, there's an intention in every mind moment. <laughs> I mean, it would be easier if it wasn't like that, but actually what's happening is that each mind moment there's an intention. There's an intention with blinking. There's an intention with a heartbeat. There's an intention with each moment. And, you know, the Buddha described that there was something like 17 million or trillion things happening in mind moments. You know, so it's, this is why I think it's really important to be careful of looking at thinking as something that uh, is, it can lead to really karmic, unwholesome results. Because if we can get a sense that we can't control thinking, then it's much more that we start to not identify with it. And it's that intention behind the aversion, it's the intention behind the desire, which is the identification, that gets us in trouble. So that there is, when we start really identifying with a fantasy, you know that yogi mind, (laughs) yogi mind is a great example, where we get completely lost in something, and we make a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, and it, it, you can see this incredible build-up to the point where we might leave, leave a really nasty note and sign it Meta. You know, that's always, you know, <laughs> that's always the, <laughs> the killer. You know, but really behind that note is incredible aversion. Uh, but we try to you know, smooth it all up with a little Meta at the end. Uh, but that, that you can see where that's an example of of believing and identifying with thought can lead to leaving a note that actually has a lot of aversion. You know, so that it's, it's that intention behind the identification that we are really working with freeing ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> you sound very deep. <laughs> it's, it's great. You're right in there. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.